Post Trauma Project with your host, Jeff Friedman. All right, here we have today Dr. Chris LaRiche, who's board certified in psychiatry and addiction psychiatry. He's the medical director of Lucida Treatment Center in Lantana, Florida, Palm Beach County. I have him here. He's really a, a leader in the field of addiction and uh, trauma specifically. And if you could start with a quote that really inspires your work. Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. A quote that inspires me would be, discover what you didn't get in your early life and provide it for yourself. It's a quote that is useful in patients and in myself and in, I think, all of us. Chris, I, I wanted to ask you about how you how you came to learn about the adverse childhood experience study. Well, I started seeing a lot of patients in my residency, and I was working in the ER, the psych ER, one of the busiest psych. It's actually the busiest psych ER in the U.S. down at down in Miami at Jackson Memorial, and we do lots of emergency psychiatry. And as I was taking history after history. Again, I, was, I work with adults, so I was taking adult histories, but I would always take a childhood history. And I started to see again and again, all of these adults who had severe problems, they had addiction, they had suicidality, they had psychosis, they had bipolar disorder, they had severe depression, severe PTSD. I started to see in their childhoods, they had very difficult childhoods. And I thought, is this a coincidence or is it just what happens in life and if you have a rough beginning you're going to have a difficult time as an adult but i started to look into the literature and i found a seminal study which was authored uh, back in i think it was 1999 in san diego california in an obesity clinic and it was called the adverse childhood experience study by Vince Felitti and um, Robert, Robert Anda. Anda, Bob Anda. And what they did was they worked with Kaiser Permanente and they had a massive database. And these were, you know, internists looking at obesity, but they, they kind of discovered the same thing in their patients. And they got a big grant from the CDC and they went back and they looked at the early life experiences of their adults with obesity and they started to look at 10 different types of trauma, including physical sexual abuse, including neglect, including violence in the home, addiction in the home, mental health problems in the home, or early parental separation, or early parental loss. And they found that in each of these categories, the more types of adverse events the young person had, it correlated shockingly with adult disease shockingly uh, to an extent that if you had four different adverse events in your early life you had let's say a ninefold increase in prevalence of uh, injecting drugs as an adult or a sevenfold increase in suicide attempts as an adult or a threefold increase in being the victim of domestic violence or a fourfold increase in being the perpetrator of domestic violence. Just shocking outcomes. And what's so fascinating is that these two docs who started it, they weren't psychiatrists, they were internal medicine docs, look trying to uncover some kind of pattern 
And you know, what they discovered really changed the way we understand early life experience, early life trauma, and later life, uh, real, really psychopathology or psychiatric illness, addiction, trauma, personality disorder. Well, they also found that a lot of physical, chronic physical ailments such as diabetes, COPD, cancer, diabetes were also associated with these events, which is interesting. Very much so. I mean, even many types of cancers, you said, many types of chronic illness were strongly associated with these early life experiences. So, you know, the question really is, my question when I read this was, well, how does it happen? <laughs> like, why does that happen? What's the mechanism? What actually happens? Is it just psychologically, psychologically clear that difficulty early life leads to difficulty later on? And that's when so much of the, so many of the studies over the past 20 years really, beautifully designed studies, have changed the way we look even at what it means to change over time. And have even, in, in some of the studies, have even really challenged what our understanding of hereditary hereditary change or hereditary traits are. So it's just opened a fascinating world for science in general and for mental health practitioners like myself in particular. Yeah, let me ask you this. Do you, did it, after you learned about this, uh, this information, the, uh, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, did, how, did it change the way you practiced or saw your patients at all? Well, it's, you know, it's amazing because I'll, I'll lecture to my group, of, I'll put all of the patients together, we'll, we'll all join together and I'll lecture them about addiction or mood disorders and I'll show them this study and I show them in a way so that it's, you know, it's a little dramatic. I kind of sculpted into these dramatic peaks and, and literally, Jeff, I can see their, their jaws dropping. And, they, and I hear it again and again. Every, every time I give the lecture, I said, that's why I'm so screwed up. They don't say screwed up, but they say, that's why I'm so screwed up. And it gives them at least, you know, and I'll put a little quote from Shakespeare in there. I say, you know, it gives, gives what they're experiencing, a local habitation and a name. Like it gives it a name that at least they can name what it is that's happening. And I'll go a little deeper and show them some of the, the structural studies, like the real changes in brain structure and, and circuits. And that gives them something even more tangible to point at. You know, when you know, mental health has been invisible for so long, it's been in the ether. And finally, we're at, a, we're at a stage where we have the technology where we're really beginning to be able to image what's happening. We're, be, we're able to um, show long-term changes in, blood, in biomarkers through blood and cerebrospinal fluid, even show atrophy of certain parts of the brain years and years after. Or cortisol uh, markers. Cortisol, endocrine markers, CRF markers. It's an exciting time exciting time and often I'll, I'll say to them you know if they've ever taken like a, a history of art class and they look at you know the history of art over time and they have the renaissance right with like 
Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci in the high Renaissance, but in the early Renaissance, you know, the first frescoes by Giotto or Frangelico, the early, we're just beginning to see the early, to, to me, this is the early Renaissance of neuroscience. We're just beginning to see the groundbreaking studies. Do you see any um, emerging technologies to help treat these types of neurobiological changes? Well, the treatment technologies are not as advanced as the, the more basic science technologies and the animal models. So the animal models have really been groundbreaking in terms of discovering what is the mechanism. Because first in science, you first have to figure out, well, what's the mechanism? And then how do you target the mechanism or disruptions in that mechanism to, to make it better? If you don't have that, then you end up with a, I mean, you end up really just approaching it from an outcome study saying, well, we don't really know how Prozac works, but we know that if you give it to someone 12 weeks later, they feel a lot better, but we have no idea how it works. So, so the first step is, you know, the mechanistic models, which are through animals and mice and rats. I mean, I love animals, but a lot of them are mice and rats where some of the best models are from. And when you get to humans, some of the better ways of imaging what, what happens in the brain is through the MRI, especially functional MRI, and through PET scans, which we're able to do through, through radioactive tracers. And, and those have been hugely, hugely informative in what's happening inside the brain. Your question is, well, do the technologies really help the treatment? And there's not, it's a little better for the neurological illnesses, things like Parkinson's or certain types of intractable epilepsies, but they haven't really been reproduced for the mental health problems. Intractable depression, there's some good outcomes from electroconvulsive therapy, which is the old shock therapy, but it's, it's not shock therapy like it was in the movies. It's really something much more targeted and much more and very successful. It's the most successful treatment for intractable depression. But we're, there's still a long way to go. So in terms of addiction, we don't have a lot of good technological treatments yet. There's some good medical or medicine treatments. Uh, but we're getting there. We're getting so much closer because we're beginning to understand the mechanisms, which is really the first step. So you think that there, uh, it holds great promise that there will be better treatment technologies in years to come? Well, look at it this way. There's, we're even getting to the point where at the level of genes and genetics, we can look at certain, certain disruptions in genes or certain mistakes in replicating genes. And we can look at what those, what are called uh, polymorphisms, what those polymorphisms are at a personal level. So I can, you know, scrape the inside of, you know, my patient's mouth and send it out to a lab and I'll be able to really get an idea of do they have a polymorphism or a kind of repeated mistake in some of their genes. And that will give me an idea of this medication might work much better than another medication. So that's called personalized medicine. And we're very close to that being 
uh, highly, highly useful. It's useful in some instances right now, but not across the board. It will be though. I, I it's very promising that it will be. So, um, so let me ask you this. So, uh, the it's clear that there's a large link connection between early childhood trauma and addiction, but there's You'd mentioned that there's some some segment of the the population that that has addiction issues that don't seem to have a, a traumatic childhood. What, how do you how do you see that fitting in? Well, most first of all, if you look at people with addiction, addiction almost always happens during difficult times in a person's life. It's rare, but it happens that addiction takes place in the best times of someone's life. So, and addiction also happens in, tends to happen, especially relapse, if you talk to many, many people with addiction, they tend to relapse at stressful times when there's lots of stress in their life. So, so it's complex. So it's really complex. So there's a genetic component to it. There's an early life component to it. There's an experiences that happen to you after you're born component to it and there's what's happening now in your life what's the inciting incident in your life component to it and then there's the own your own personality or character structure so and the environment in which you are interacting with the world so to me addiction is really the most complex illness that there is because it involves all of these factors so that <laughs> that's why my answers are kind of long because they involve so many different factors. Your question is about early life stress, early life trauma, and later life addiction. Well, you, br- you brought up that I, I thought was interesting that this idea that it's, it's almost a little bit romantic to think that all addiction is related to trauma, which it can be a compelling narrative, but, but there seems to be certain folks that don't fit into that model. There are, you know, and listen, of romantics, I'm probably the head of the list, so I would love to think that everyone is is working out a kind of deep conflict or some trauma through their addiction. It happens more often than not, and I would say the majority of the folks that I see, they have an earlier life trauma or something unresolved, and they can't they can't kind of regulate their internal states. They can't kind of keep themselves stable or balanced. Uh, and they turn to drugs or alcohol as a solution. But there's a subset of patients, and it, it is a minority, who create an addiction without any observable depression, without any observable trauma, without any observable, even without any observable stressor in their life. They might just create an addiction out of, well, they break their. You know, they broke their ankle playing soccer and they started with Oxycontin. Well, they started with Percocet and Vicodin and went to Oxycontin and then they couldn't find Oxycontin anymore. So they started to take heroin. There are not that many like that, but there are. And what do you think that is maybe unique that, that the sort of the pain leads to the addiction kind of? Not at all. Not the pain. No. I mean, well, I mean, I see so many, so many people with pain and addiction. Right. You know, they did an interesting study of the psychic pain that mothers feel 
when their children die. And they looked at the structure, they looked at the underlying structures, the neural structures underlying, and they found that this kind of horrible, this horrible grief of losing a child was synonymous with, was overlying the same structures of physical pain, which to anyone who's experienced that type of pain, I, you know, I haven't myself, but I certainly had many patients who have, makes perfect sense. They're like, well, you know, this is some psychic pain that's worse than physical pain, but it's actually some of the very same structures are involved. So physical pain, when you use opiates or the opiate system for analgesia, for pain relief, it actually works as a fairly potent antidepressant as well. So a lot of patients who, a lot of people who were experiencing chronic anxiety or chronic depression might present to us treatment providers looking for help with their addiction. And they're really using the opiate to help with the depression or the anxiety. And this is very common because there is something very intimately connected between the opiate system, which helps us regulate pain, but it also helps us with motivated behavior, and it helps us in resilience from stress and depression. So, you know, I'll give a lecture, it's funny because I'll give a lecture, and in where I work at Lucida, we have two programs. We have an addiction program with co-occurring illness like depression and and opiate dependence and we'll have a non-addiction group for females called the women's mood mood program and often i'll lecture them both together or be talking them both together and sometimes the the women who don't have an addiction will say well i don't know why you're mixing me with these people with addiction because that's not me and i'll say you know they're more connected than you might imagine and i'll show them how and certainly someone with a mood disorder is much more vulnerable to an addiction. I mean, that we know. We also know that over the course of a lifetime, someone with a mood disorder is about 60% likely to have an addictive disorder over the course of their lifetime. So it's very common. So what, any particular uh, books that you would recommend on the, the subject of uh, trauma that uh, you would refer to other therapists or... Uh Psychiatrist. You know, we, we, where I work, we have an extraordinary somatic experiencing therapist named Lynn Carroll. And she studied and is really, really extraordinary healer in somatic experiencing. And that was an approach put together by Peter Levine, an Australian therapist who you know, and perhaps it's a romantic notion, but, but what I remember is that he, he noticed wild animals who had been through a traumatic event and he's, uh, you know, an attack of another animal. Let's say I'm getting in trouble here because I don't know the animals in Australia, but maybe a kangaroo, which attacks another kangaroo, I can't say. But what the animal will do after the trauma is go off into the high bushes and lie down and have a kind of almost physical seizure-like reaction where their whole body shakes and 
it's almost like they're shaking off the trauma and they're there for hours just sort of shaking and trembling and then the animal will emerge from from the 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 bushes and kind of be okay they kind of be okay they can kind of carry on with their life and they don't tend to they don't seem to sort of carry the trauma around with them and so he postulated i believe and i'm no expert on somatic experiencing peter levine but he postulated that so much of the traumatic memories are not in our you know word memory parts our semantic memories in our minds but they're trapped in our bodies and that uh, part of the therapeutic process is releasing releasing this embodied trauma or this trapped in the body trauma through a really remarkable series of um, a series of uh, modalities uh, and interventions in somatic experiencing so you know that's that's somatic experiencing and Peter Levine's work is something I've I've been really privileged to see help some help countless patients through Lynn Carroll's work and that's really been eye-opening I mean really eye-opening to see that you know I have a more mon mundane role in the whole picture which is you know to offer them medication and to kind of give them some education about it but you had talked about previously how you sometimes will take their blood pressure and stuff to engage with their body yes yeah, so you know there's something you know there's really something about human touch that is very healing and you know of the five senses of the body sight you know vision you know vision sound taste smell and touch people can do quite well if they're born without one of these senses blind people can do quite well people that don't hear can do extremely well despite not having the sense but the one sense that is uh, uh, profoundly, profoundly damaging, life-shortening, uh, disease-provoking, if you lose it, is the sense of touch. And our bodies are really wired to be touched. You know, there's famous um, studies done in orphanages in Romania with infants and babies that weren't touched and ones that were touched and kind of caressed and soothed and their failure to thrive and their lower birth rates and their higher death rates so touching is so important but guess what you know as a therapist we're kind of taught we're not supposed to be touching our patients that's a boundary that we're not supposed to cross that's part of the therapeutic frame as a physician we do touch our patients that's, I mean, you're supposed to you're you supposed can. to touch. you're supposed to give the physical exam so often what i'll do is if i believe a patient you know, could really benefit from just some human contact. I will just tell them, okay, you know, I'm going to take your blood pressure. And I'll take their blood pressure. And I use it as a kind of conceit, just so I, I can, they can feel close to me in a kind of caring, doctorly way. And they have some human contact. And um, it might shift something in them. You know, there's no... I don't have a real method behind it, but it's more on a gut level. If I feel someone kind of uh, might be isolating or might be might not be connecting with others, I sometimes do that. So what? Um, 
what advice would you um, give to other other practitioners working with uh, trauma specifically? Well, one thing is, I would say, you know, there's nothing like a good there's nothing like a good scale. So, using a good trauma scale, and there's so many out there that are available in the public domain, can be really really useful. The life events checklist. There's the childhood trauma questionnaire. There's the the one from the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Events Study, which is 10 types of trauma. And they're short, they're easy to give. And remember that patients who have trauma, they might not want to talk about it. You know, it might be easier for them to check something off on a piece of paper. So something I'll give to all my patients before I actually see them is just a trauma uh, questionnaire. And that can give you some information and then I ask every patient, adult patient, the same set of questions. And when you ask the same set of questions again and again and again, the smallest little variation, you become very good at pattern recognition. And you're like, boom, something's here. So the same the question I'll ask is, you know, where were they where were they born? How many siblings they have? Which one were they in the order of their siblings? Who raised them? That's a big one. Who raised you? And they'll be like mom and dad. And I say, but the whole time, you know, were there any disruptions? And then I will say, how do you describe, how would you describe your childhood? That is so telling, just listening very closely to how would you describe your childhood? And not just once, but when you do it with, you know, dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of patients, you get to pick up on the smallest little variations and not to forget you know, the, the large cataclysmic traumatic events are perhaps easily remembered and easily repressed. But, but then there's the, not to forget, just simple deprivation or neglect. The deprivation or neglect is very prevalent and certainly needs to be addressed, especially in narcissistic families. This is something you and I spoke about right. a little earlier, but to grow up, not to be a narcissist yourself, which... In a narcissistic family, you could become one easily. But to grow up in a narcissistic family can be really, really damaging if you're just an extension of your family to either show achievements or to be impressive. And I think that narcissistic piece is probably something that's uh, not as prevalent in the literature because it's harder to uh, identify narcissistic people to study. Yeah, you know, they did a really cool study just, I think it was in the past year, where they could they asked just a series of questions of children or a series of questions of the parents without ever speaking with the children. And they could predict very accurately if the child would become a narcissist. Oh. <laughs> and some of the questions were, you know, is your child... You know, is your child exceptional? You know, and they would even ask, they would even ask make-up questions like, do you think your child knows who, what the capital of Maxrovia is? You know, a make-up country. They would say, oh, well, of course my child knows what that is. <laughs> and they would use kind of fake questions to see if the parent would take the bait because the parent might overvalue what the child knows and also say to the child, you're not as good as the other kids. You're much better and you deserve much better than the other, much more than the other kids do. So I just thought that was, that was fascinating that there are just a couple questions you could ask that would predict a future narcissist. 
But think about it. If, if you know, as children, we're so, we're so absolutely dependent. We're utterly dependent on our parents. I used to have a supervisor in psychotherapy who said, what would happen to a child, a seven-year-old, if they got locked out of their house? Like really locked out of their house and they could not be inside a house. That, that child would die. I mean, that child would literally die. And we don't, we're not really present to that horror. But children are utterly dependent on us. So they absorb our values without ever questioning it until they become young adults and they get into therapy and they start seeing, you know, they start, they start asking inconvenient questions. So Sorry about that. Right. So if a, if a young person is raised to achieve and to be impressive and to make the parents swell with pride with how they look or how good they are in sports or what they do in school, often, you know, you'll get, you'll get young, you'll get adults at 30 years old, 40 years old, who become very impressive, who become very successful, who become have all the trappings of a high achieving lifestyle and there's something missing. They look to the left, they look to the right, they see their friends and their peers and they're happy and smiling and having a great life and they have everything or more than their friends or peers have and yet they're not happy. And they're like, did I miss something? What am I missing? I'm doing everything that was expected of me. And really they followed the path of fulfilling the expectations of, you know, of their parents and their peers in the path of conformity, where they really cause no ripples. And yet they get to kind of mid-adulthood and they have, you know, the almost stereotypical midlife crisis. But it's a crisis of meaning. It's like, well, this doesn't mean anything to me. I have a patient who's who's you know very successful attorney and he, and he feels desperately empty because he never wanted to be that he was just following out the expectations of his parents and so you see that a lot and and you even ask those people you say well what is it you want you know this is the country where you know the american you know all you need to do is decide what you want and then go after it. And yet you ask these folks, well, what do you want? And they cannot answer that question. They say, I don't, I've never been asked that. Like, I, I don't know. I don't even know what I want. Because the parents never cued or tuned into their internal states. They just saw them achieving or producing stuff or becoming impressive. So, so I love working with those patients. Because what they need is a good old-fashioned dose of rebellion, to rebel against the expectations of the parents to get enough psychological space so that they can really begin to explore just other things, just explore. So the addiction is a way of rebellion and exploration? Well, addiction can be. It can be a type of rebellion, but it's an incomplete rebellion. I mean, some folks are able to experiment with drugs and never get into trouble with it. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point because part of my... I've seen a lot of work around that that sort of highlights that the trauma piece is what leads the people to not be able to just experiment without getting a developing problem. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think if, if what separates, you know, folks that are able to experiment and just experiment recreationally with drugs and then move on and not ever go back to it versus um, the folks that end up in the severe end of the spectrum of addiction is generally the missing pieces, trauma. Have they had significant trauma, either early life or recently? And yet there's, there's interesting emerging literature too on purpose in life and addiction. And, and having a purpose in life. Actually, they did a cool study that was about religion and addiction. And they looked at religion and addiction, spirituality and addiction and recovery and who did better. And they found that the people that did the best were not the religious people. They were people who had a more general spiritual, or spiritual approach or had an approach to life that wasn't spiritual, but where they prioritized meaning and meaningful experiences. And it wasn't actually religion that was protective against addiction and protective for recovery. And I think that message is, is important because it goes to a sense of, well, that's a big question. So I think it goes to a sense of, you know, So, so many, so to, to me, a lot of people, especially almost everyone who has an addiction as an adult have had, uh, I would say high 90% has had some contact with addictive substances in their developing brain. So before the age of 20, they've had some contact with marijuana, with alcohol, with something. And they might not develop the full addiction until their 40s or whatever, but if you trace it back, 95% have had some contact with an addictive substance early in the developing brain. So, you know, I know, Jeff, that your interest is in looking at attachment and addiction, and I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of trying to get there myself <laughs> because I think it's a great, you know, a great topic. You know, it's marginalized people, people that are marginalized, people that are peripheralized in the periphery or outcast. I think they're much more susceptible to addiction because how do I feel connected to another human being? We taught you and I talked about the, the, the experience that so many young people have with marijuana. And I think that's a big topic these days, obviously it's in the news, but marijuana produces a kind of, you know, euphoria, mild hallucinogenic experience. And I, I heard, uh, a friend of mine in the in the head of the head of Elements, my the company I'm working for now, he, David Sack, he said it, pro, it produces a kind of pseudo intimacy, a pseudo shared experience of uh, oh my god, this is so amazing! Can you feel it too? Yeah, we're both like we're both really you know vibing on this this weed that we're smoking, and it kind of becomes. Uh, erzatz or a substitute for real intimacy, which is unpredictable. It's hard to control. You can't force it. It be painful. It can be very painful, very uncertain. And so 
you know, if you have a lot of marijuana experiences instead of a lot of really quite challenging stabs at intimacy, really trying to get close to another human being, you know, that you really can't compare the two. And yet, so many young adults I see, and you know, they, they that's really all they have, and they kind of think that that is what intimacy is. And honestly, intimacy is one of the most difficult things that I'm still struggling with. So, but I don't think it's, the answer is marijuana for intimacy. I don't think it is. But this is a, a little bit out there question, but what, do you see any role of, of psychedelics helping people deal with addiction or, or their role in addiction themselves? You know, that's, that's, you know, a very hot topic. And a topic I have to say, I don't know enough about to really say if it's helpful in addiction. It's well, certainly helpful in, so the, the studies that have been out there are the role of psychedelics, especially psilocybin or mushrooms in people who are at the end of life. And they're at the end of life and providing a sense of meaning for them, an integrated sense of meaning who are at the end of life. And it can be end of life through terminal disease or just through old age. And that some psychedelics have been shown to give more of a sense of meaning. Remember the psychedelics, LSD, and some of the others were originally, were original experimental compounds to see what would happen as a, as a therapy, as a type right. of therapeutic substance. Oh, that's why this will let me to bring up the question, the idea of maybe psychedelics helping to foster intimacy. <laughs> oh, I see, like to, a false sense of intimacy or foster? Uh, help to, uh, because I know that there were some studies done, I think, in the, in the 70s with MDMA used in uh, helping people create more of, um, open up more in therapy. Well, look, MDMA is, so with MDMA and most of psychedelics, there are hallucinogens that work through serotonin. And we know that serotonin can induce a kind of, a kind of intimacy, a chemically induced intimacy. And I don't know, but I, I can imagine with certain people that have not felt that, that have not experienced that or have rarely experienced that, that to have a chemically induced experience might in certain people be revelatory. And they might say, wow, is this what being close to another human could feel like? I'm curious about other humans now in a way I haven't been before. And these might be more isolative types or Asperger types. I don't know. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. But or perhaps with trauma, helping them to work through a trauma, um, having a different, having a trip to help to... Well, you know, I, I and I'm sorry I didn't do this, but I, I couldn't make it happen today. But there's a psychiatrist out on the west coast of Florida who uses ketamine in the middle of a longer course of psychotherapy. He'll do 10 courses of psycho, 10 sessions of psychotherapy. And in the middle of it, session five, he'll have a ketamine experience where he infuses ketamine, which is a- Through IV? Just, just an injection, just I am, just an injection in your side, in your, in your butt. Glute. And that, in, so ketamine is a, and in, well, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. It's a dissociative anesthetic. 
So it makes you have a kind of ego-dissolving, uh, out-of-body experience, nirvana-like experience. And he uses this in the middle of kind of existential psychotherapy to kind of help people connect parts of their life and have a deeper experience of meaning. And I and I signed up to try it once, and I unfortunately I couldn't do it. But um, you try the 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 experience to try the experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I wasn't able to do it. But you know something interesting is that ketamine, which again is this dissociative type of anesthesia. It's been around for a long time. Is now one of it's perhaps the the great you know the great white hope. It is really the the newest agent for treatment resistant depression and very very quick reversal of depression. Well, have you heard of the, there uh, another work on this derivative of ketamine called Glix thirteen? You ever heard of that one? Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, my understanding of it is it's supposed to be sort of a ketamine without the sort of the fun, the real hallucinatory aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. The, 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 I mean, ketamine's being used right now. It's being used right now all over for, for treatment-resistant depression. We use it at one of our facilities up in, up in Tennessee. And I think we're going to start using I think I'm going to start using it with patients down here pretty oh, soon. Cool. Yeah, it's going to be really cool to do it. And ketamine is a very, has a much lower abuse potential than a lot of other drugs. So... I just hope the patient doesn't get stuck in the K-hole and they can't get out of the K-hole and they're flipping out. But I don't, I don't know. I, I have very little experience with it, so I want to check it out. So again, going back to that attach, the attachment addiction piece. So I, I, what I find really interesting about it is particularly the people that often become opiate dependent or opiate uh, abusers often have. There seems to be a clear link that opiates sort of work on this attachment system in the brain and that this theory that if someone doesn't get the proper love or they're mistreated as a child that being that because of that experience they don't secrete enough of their own uh, endogenous opiates that they they end up not sort of consciously but when they're when they experience opiates it provides them with with that with a sense of analgesia analgesia that they didn't get from their internal system and maybe you could let me speak to a little bit about that uh, phenomenon well there's some of that opiates that is unique really unique it's it's not like the other it's not like the stimulants like cocaine it's not like alcohol it's not like weed like opiate something about the opiate addiction that is unique and it seems to me from seeing so many of of my peeps of my patients that it's kind of the all-encompassing drug like you know they say that it's better than sex they say that it's better than <laughs> than sex it's better than an org if you watch train spotting you know one of the first lines and it is you know that it's better than orgasm it's the best orgasm times a thousand now whether this fosters a a kind of alternative sense of attachment i don't know people certainly are extremely attached to opiates and the other thing that they're so extremely attached to is weed you know they'll want to give up everything except weed that's the one thing i won't give up but that's a sort of different topic and so 
you know, what is it that is the complete objectification, reification of desire, where everything in the world I want is, is reduced down to one thing, that I don't have to worry about anything else. All I want to do is from the moment I wake, is figure out how to get the money, figure out how to, to buy the stuff, figure out where I'm going to take it, figure out who I'm going to take it with, figure out where I'm going to come down off of it, figure out so that I won't get caught, figure out what I'm going to do so I start, when I start withdrawing, figure out you know how I'm going to get the money together so I can get money to avoid the withdrawal. Self-regulation, self-soothing. I like Hans Kohut, who talks about the self-object function. You think about our early lives, right? and how babies get so upset if their mother leaves them, right? And yet a mother can't be with her child forever. She has to equip her child so that he or she can grow up and be autonomous. So you probably know Winnicott. And Winnicott who talked about there's no, first of all he said something I think it's revolutionary. He said, there is no such thing as a baby. A baby does not exist. There is a baby and a mother. But a baby itself, there, there is nothing that doesn't exist. We are dyadic. We're in dyadic relationship to the other, the mother or the caregiver. And so he talked about the good enough mother, which, you know. Well, that's his uh, famous, that's the one I think I hold. It's so, uh, yeah. It's such a compelling concept, isn't it? The concept that there's not, there's no such thing as a perfect mother. There's a mother who's good enough. And what she does is she gauges how much and how often, question of dose and timing, how much or how often she can frustrate the needs of her infant so that the infant will become autonomous. She won't every time jump in to save her child. She will let the child deal with it for a little while and then see how much the little child can tolerate. And what I love about it is that you see that in all types of mother and infant, not even humans. You see it in dogs and puppies. Or you see it in you know ducks and little ducks, ducklings. Or you see it you see the little baby coming back to the mothership and then going away on its own and then jump coming back to mom. And, and my, my, my sister, she says it so, she articulates it perfectly. When my little niece was running back to my sister and you know she was kind of upset because she'd been in the playground and something didn't go right and she needed to like hug her mommy. And my, mom, my sister said, oh, your tanks are low. Your tanks are low. You need to refill, refuel your tanks, giving her a hug. And it really is kind of like that. So I love the concept of the good enough mother so that you slowly frustrate and, and lovingly frustrate the needs of the child so that the child can be autonomous at some point. And that, I think, is so much of the root of attachment disorders, certainly, and of addiction, is that... I don't know how to be alone. I can't, I can't deal with that. I don't know what that's even called. And most addicts will call it being bored. Right. I can't be bored. But bored is just a, it's just a cover term for something else. And they have this severe alexithymia or inability to name their internal states. 
so that when something is ugh, bad, but it's very difficult to name, frustration mixed with stress, mixed with anticipation, mixed with anger, mixed with resentment, whatever it is, that they want to anesthetize it or hyperstimulate. So it's either anesthetize, hyperarouse, anesthetize, hyperarouse, because or get rid of a withdrawal kind of. A or well, yeah. Later on, just avoid being dope sick. You will have you have no idea the stuff you see the people do to avoid being dope sick. Oh my god! That that's really at the root of so much of man's problems. I'm gonna have to look that up. I think it was Pascal. But the inability to be, you know, Osho said something great. He said the capacity to be alone is the capacity to love. It may sound paradoxical to you, but it's an existential truth. Unless we can be alone, we become addicted to the other, dependent on the other. We use the other as an object. We have to first learn to be alone, and only then can we love another without objectifying the other or turning the other into a transaction. And I think that's a profound truth, and it's a difficult one. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's certainly at the root. And, you know, there are many studies that talk about the neuroendocrine pathways, the stress, path, the stress pathways that actually illustrate that. But, you know, we, we don't have to go into all of them, but um, it's something that's useful. And I think therapists really would get a lot out of just acquainting themselves with a couple of those studies, and, and most of them have, and most of them have seen them. These are so useful to tell to our clients, you know. So, uh, well, thank you for uh, joining me here on this exploration. And it's a pleasure talking with you today. And, uh, Pleasure's all mine, my man. This is fun. <laughs> the 